Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. Hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Philip Martin, in for Callie Crosley. This week on Under the Radar, 10 years ago, tragedy struck Boston. Two bombs exploded near the finish line of the Boston Marathon, killing three and wounding hundreds. It will forever be remembered as a dark day for the city, but heroic actions from first responders saved many other victims. Still, the impact of the explosion was felt far beyond the blast radius. From safety procedures to police surveillance, certain elements of the city will never be the same. And questions about the attack remain, even as the community continues to process and remember. We reflect on the moment 10 years later to understand the full impact of the bombing, how the city has healed, and what scars remain. Later in the show, Massachusetts became one of the first states to legalize marijuana back in 2016 and is now a hub for the cannabis industry. But the industry was founded on years of criminalization for marijuana possession and distribution, especially for people of color. I believe that any person who has a marijuana offense currently or in the past, um, that should be wiped from wiped from their record. Because there are companies who are operating in the state of Massachusetts who are making hundreds of millions of dollars. And I guarantee you, none of the people currently locked up sold anywhere near as much as <laughs> some of the companies How has the industry become more inclusive today, and what steps still need to be taken? We speak with Tito Jackson, a former Boston City Councilor and CEO of Apex, a cannabis retailer located in Faneuil Hall, and Drew Ledbetter, the CEO of Flower Express, a recreational cannabis delivery company, and the owner and CEO of Zeb Boutique, a cannabis retail dispensary. But first, joining me remotely... Bruce Gellerman, a colleague and former senior correspondent for WBUR. What's happening, Bruce? Hey, Philip. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. We're also joined by Rich Serino. He's a distinguished senior fellow at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, former deputy administrator for the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA, and former chief of Boston EMS. Welcome, Rich. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So look, uh, we have a lot of questions, and one, of course, is that Ten years have passed since the marathon bombing, which was not just a day episode, but a week that changed Boston. Two explosions. There was the search for the terrorists who detonated them. There was the chase and gunfight in Watertown. You had to capture Jahar Zarnayev. And then links to a 2011 triple homicide in Waltham. Bruce Rich, we were all there and involved in various ways. So, gentlemen, talk about your connections to that week and beyond in 2013, starting with you, Bruce. How did you report on the week's manhunt and make the link to Waltham briefly? Well, so I was uh, at my studio when we knew about the bombing. I was on the scene. I rode my bike to the Boylston Street. I was there in about 10 minutes. And uh, I followed it ever since. I went to the Westin, which was the the site where they constituted a command center right after the bombing. Um, Then I filed all that week and from uh, Boylston Street and beyond, I live in Watertown, so the night of the hijacking, the carjacking, I got a call from my editor. I had just filed, went to sleep, and got a call from my editor saying, there's something going on in Watertown, you know, can you cover it? I jumped out of bed, and it was on the scene almost right where near the boat 
uh, was found uh, 18 hours later. Uh, Jahar was found in the boat. And I was I walked to uh, almost to Laurel Street where the bombs had been, you know, and the fighting had happened. So I was there. I kind of eyewitnessed it almost. And that's true for you, too, Rich. You uh, were uh, at the time with FEMA. And uh, what what did you experience? Well, that day I was uh, actually at the marathon throughout the whole day. I was at the state's emergency operations center out in Framingham when the race started, uh, and then came down to the finish line, was at the finish line uh, for probably a good couple of hours, um, seeing folks I had worked with for literally decades uh, before I went to Washington. And I happened to be back in Boston that day uh, as the deputy administrator of FEMA, and I was there actually to ironically speak at a class at Harvard that evening. Um, so I was at the finish line and shortly before um, the bombs went off, I had just left the finish line area and headed out to Harvard. Uh, when the bombs went off, came back in a police cruiser, was back on site within a few minutes of, of the finish line and uh, went right back to the area of the medical tent, started speaking with uh, folks there. Um, there and on Boylston Street, and then I was on the phone with the White House, with the Secretary of Homeland Security, and FEMA's National Response Coordination Center, um, as we were all, you know, trying to gather information, what was going on, and then went into the Weston Hotel, uh, where we started to formulate a, a leadership area, a command post inside the one of the conference spaces there, with the leadership from, you know, the mayor, the governor, the state police, Boston police, FBI. National Guard, T Police, uh, Emergency Medical Services, the Fire Department, uh, all, all together there. So, Rich, in, interestingly, all three of us were there at the same time because I was at the Weston. So was um, uh, so was Bruce for that press conference. Um, and in the immediate aftermath of the bombing, when we uh, would not know for days about the Zarnayevs. What was going through the minds of uh, yourself, uh, Rich, and, and you, Bruce? What were you thinking? What was happening in the city? It was so unprecedented. Well, there were a lot of decisions initially to be made, to, A, to figure out exactly what was going on. Uh, historically, in incidents like this, we've, we've studied uh, other bombing incidences, and usually there's never just one, as we know there were two. In other bombings, both in London and Madrid, there had been four bombs. Uh, we had an explosion that happened at the Kennedy Library at the same time. Uh, we weren't sure what was going on there initially. Thankfully, it turned out to be a transformer explosion. We did not know that initially. Uh, there'd been a, a detonation, a controlled detonation of a suspected device on Boylston Street uh, around the same time as we realized what was going on at the Kennedy Library. So there were, there were four things happening at once. Um, it, it, that, but the my priority was actually taking care of the patients, is getting all the people that were injured, getting the uh, people that were on scene uh, distributed to the hospitals throughout the city. And they were evenly distributed to the hospitals, and that was no accident. It was no accident because we had actually planned for that. We had drilled for that. We had exercised for that. It was no accident that the uh, equipment was on site. It was no accident that the uh, medical intelligence center was open. It was no accident that we were able to have all the equipment that was needed on site, on site. And the response was enormous. Bruce, how would you describe it? And also talk about some of the initial suspicions uh, that occurred. Uh, this, of course, was uh, in the 
uh, in an atmosphere of what was happening in the Middle East. Uh, there were concerns about uh, ISIS uh, and uh, uh, other organizations, al-Qaeda. Uh, what, was, uh, what were you reporting on at that time, Bruce, in the initial uh, aftermath of these bombings? You know, a reporter is paid to be suspicious and ask questions. I mean, that's the basic tool of a reporter. So that's what I was doing, trying to get information by asking questions. Anybody who would speak to me, even people who wouldn't speak to me, uh, I would ask questions. And, and, you know, it's the basic who, what, where, when, how, why. Uh, but I got to tell you, though, I've never stopped asking questions because I haven't gotten answers to certain basic questions that really deserve answers. So in the aftermath, you know, it was speaking to people who experienced the bombing, recording them, sending it back to the studio, uh, doing it by live interviews by phone, uh, going to the command center, asking, you know, people off the record, on the record, anybody who would talk to me at the FBI, the Homeland Security, you name it. Um, you know, what happened? How did it happen? And it was chaos. You know, we did have these things happen at the Kennedy Center. We did have this third, uh, con- you know, contained explosion controlled this explosion going off, you know, a lot was happening. But, you know, when you start to try to digest it, it starts distilling. And and I got to tell you, I have a, there's a curious lack of curiosity among many people, uh, even today, 10 years later. And I think we deserve certain answers. Well, I think you're right. There are a lot of unanswered questions. I want to explore that later uh, in in this segment for sure. Rich, getting back to the the immediate aftermath of these explosions, where uh, at that point three people had perished, uh, we would later see the death of a police officer at MIT. Uh, and what was instructive for you, I understand, was Sandy Hook. Um, in December of, of um, 2012, there were the mass murder of children in that Connecticut uh, community. And I'm wondering, what did yourself and other emergency specialists learn from that mass tragedy that was and could have been applied to Boston in the aftermath of the Marathon bombings? I think, unfortunately, we learned from many disasters. And we had learned from Sandy Hook um, is to also think of the survivors, is you know understanding how important it is to take care of the families, to take care of the mental health issues, uh, and also to, to learn how to deal with these mass traumatic incidents. You know, unfortunately there, they were, the survivors were children who were not, and teachers who were not shot. Um, most of the, anybody that was shot, unfortunately perished. But we learned from that as well. We learned that we have to take care of the living, but we also, we have to very support the survivors and we have to support the first responders. The mental health issues after incidents like this are very significant in how we take care of the first responders, how we take care of the families, and how we take care of the community is all really important as well. Well, gentlemen, let's build up to what happened after the bombings. Uh, let's talk about uh, Tuesday and Wednesday into Thursday. Uh, there was a lot of, at that point, uh, video uh, taped um, evidence. There was a lot of surveillance cameras being uh, looked at, photographs, uh, tips from uh, coming in from folks uh, around the city who may have seen something. And then we'd get uh, Thursday, of course, where uh, the two suspects are finally identified, uh, later leading to um, an initial gunfight in Watertown. One of the more curious questions, and I know it's one that Bruce has raised, 
is about the crossfire, quote-unquote, that occurred in Watertown. Bruce Rich, an initial story about this nearly fatal wounding of an MBTA transit police officer named Richard Donahue in Watertown, it was originally described as something that occurred during a firefight with the Tsarnaevs. But we quickly learned that it was a made-up story of heroics. I'm wondering about the Donahue aspect of this. Donahue was injured by friendly fire, and it could have been worse. Uh, Rich, my first question is to you, actually. How much worse could it have been? Well, I think, you know, thank you. know, unfortunately, you know, we lost, I mean, Rich, uh, Sergeant Donahue, he, he was severely injured. Um, it, it could have been worse. Uh, we had lost Officer Collia. We had also lost, unfortunately, a year later, Officer Simmons from the Boston Police Department for injuries he received uh, that evening. Um, but it, uh, how, you know, one of the things we have to do is learn learn how we respond in the future. And what we learned from this is to, you know, a different area agencies responding in without uh, control and having people from other agencies uh, report in Boston police, state police, Watertown police, we're all communicating with each other. It's when other agencies uh, come in. And so what we've learned is how to make sure that people are able to communicate between all the different departments as they respond into uh, incidents such as uh, the marathon or the aftermath of the marathon and other incidences as well. Richard, you're referring to the massive police deployment where folks were coming in from as far away as Connecticut and New Hampshire without being called. Right. There was a large police presence. Some were called. uh, Specialty units were called in, but there were a lot that weren't called in. And how to control those and how to communicate with those. And thankfully, in the last 10 years, a lot of progress has been made on how we communicate with outside agencies that come into the into a city or into a jurisdiction, uh, wherever, wherever it is, and how they communicate uh, and how they train together. And Bruce, you've written about the uh, the shooting of uh, Richard Donahue in Watertown. Um, talk about uh, your concerns uh, in the uh, after the, the near fatal wounding of this officer, and uh, and some of the questions that were raised about the initial uh, explanation uh, and what you discovered subsequently. Yeah, so my question was, how did Dick Donahue, the MBTA cop who's on Laurel Street, just off Laurel Street, not just get shot, but how did he get there? He was one of the first on the scenes. So here's an MBTA cop who had met, uh, was had woke up early that morning because he was at Logan Airport on duty um, because Obama was coming in. So he was on that duty. And yet he was still on duty at 1030, about 1024 is when Sean Collier gets uh, murdered on the MIT campus. Somehow he winds up on the MIT campus. Now, it gets curious because we're told that Collier and Donahue were the best buddies at MBTA Academy, which I can find no evidence of. There's no evidence. I can't find any. Uh, There's a doctored photo of them together at the graduation at Faneuil Hall, but it is doctored. They're arm in arm, uh, over shoulder. So the question is, how does Dick Donahue actually get to Watertown that night. Uh, how does he know? Well, we're told the first time he tells us, we chased them out of MIT into, into Watertown and they were throwing bombs and shooting at us. That's the first explanation he gives. And, and the second one was, we went looking for them. Well, you're in Cambridge, you went looking for them in Watertown? Well, let, me, let, me, let me interrupt you just for, just for a, a, a second, Bruce, because there was one aspect of this that I can attest to personally. 
I happened to be on a city bus coming from the press conference that had occurred that night. Uh, we, had, it had, we had moved the course from the, uh, from the Westin, and the press conference was held at the Sheridan. I was on a bus crossing the, the, uh, the Mass Avenue Bridge when I saw dozens of police cars uh, uh, lighting up the MIT area. I could see and, and saw other cars rushing there. I had the bus driver drop me off in Central Square. I just happened to have left my car there. I rushed over to MIT, and there were dozens of police officers there and others uh, because Officer Collier had just been shot. During the time I was there, all of a sudden a call went out that something was happening in Watertown. Dozens of police officers jumped in cars, including in unmarked cars and in civilian cars, I joined that stream. Uh, they did not, uh, I wasn't asked if I was a police officer. I knew that something was happening. I joined that stream heading to Watertown. Uh, and that is my way of suggesting, perhaps, uh, that Donahue, perhaps among others, and I don't know if this to be the true or not. I have no idea what Donahue was and how he ended up there. But I do know that dozens of police officers were in that stream going from MIT uh, up Ma uh, Memorial Drive in other ways to get to Watertown. It was quite a dramatic scene. And I, and I should also mention that um, uh, I haven't seen it, but this month Netflix is releasing a documentary series that's been long in the works called American Manhunt, uh, the Boston Marathon. But I was interviewed for the documentary recalling this experience 10 years ago. But I would ask, I would ask a broader question about this and others. What are the questions left unanswered about the Boston Marathon bombing, in addition to the one that you posed, uh, Bruce? Uh, and I will ask Rich that question and then turn to you, Bruce. Well, I think the, the question of determining exactly what happened, I mean, we they seem to have, we have the video evidence of what happened on Boylston Street, uh, the response after the fact to the incident, um, on Boylston Street, I think was one of the better responses, as, as many people have suggested, to the response to save lives. That that's the initial, most important thing is saving the lives of the response there. The fact that 262 people that were injured that day, three people died instantaneously, but those 262 survived, and that survived because of a lot of the uh, preparation of lots of people and the response of the people on site. I think some of the questions unanswered in the investigation is more directed towards law enforcement. And what might those questions be for you, Bruce, uh, those questions about law enforcement? Well, I want to know what time did the shootout occur in Watertown? You say that Collier was shot at 10.30, 10.24, but it wasn't until like 11.30 that the shootout happened. So it's an hour later. So I question how, how, how they found out. We still don't know. How they trace them to Watertown. There's no definitive answer there. But let me let me answer your direct question. Uh, who built the bombs? A fundamental question, right? Who built the bombs? Well, according to the, the district attorney, federal prosecutor at the time, he 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 basically he said in open court, I was there. It was pre-trial. I almost fell out of my my seat when he said this. He said that the bombs were too sophisticated for the Tsunayevs to have made. They had to have resources they didn't have. Uh, they must have had help. He said that. I remember that. I was I was in the courthouse too when that happened. You're you're absolutely correct. Yeah, so that's one. Two, they they say in court that they had a forensic experts go to the house on Norfolk Street and they found residue of black powder uh, from gunpowder from uh, a pyrotech, basically fireworks. 
Well, <laughs> that's not true. Um, for a couple of reasons, we know that because the amount you would get from these devices is so minute and they don't explode, they burn. So it wasn't, they don't know who made the bombs. Till this day, they don't know. And, and the case they made in court was really, 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 uh, I would generously call it storytelling. So these, are, so these are some of the questions that you have, Bruce, and it's questions that uh, will not certainly be solved in this segment, but it's some of the questions that, are, that I think others are still asking as well. I want to return also, of course, to the human cost of this bombing. Um, we, there, of course, has been attention paid to the victims and survivors, but perhaps not enough. Because we, and the reason I say that is you, you would hope that these lessons would be learned all over the, the country. And Rich, I'm wondering, in addition, you've learned from Sandy Hook, but what have other communities learned from Boston, uh, the Boston Marathon bombing? That you asked, you, you raised a question about uh, police deployment. You raised a question about communication. Do you think other communities around the country that have uh, observed the aftermath of the bombing and what happened that day in the immediate aftermath of the bombing, what do you think they've learned? Well, I, I know a lot of people have learned because they, they have told us everything from the incidents that happened, the shootings and the bombings in Paris. Uh, there was actually a year after that, there was a, a forum held in Boston with Paris and Boston to learn from both incidents. And during that time, they had specifically said that they had learned from some of the articles, uh, both in the medical and the response journal of how to respond and how to treat people. Uh, and they said that saved lives there. We also know that um, the use of tourniquets that happened that day has saved lives. In fact, prior to the uh, 2013, the Red Cross and many other agencies were teaching not to use tourniquets. On uh, Boston, thanks to uh, Dr. Erwin Hirsch and others, we had always used tourniquets. Um, after the incident, both uh, in Sandy Hook with Dr. Lenworth Jacobs, who started paramedicine in Boston and was in Hartford uh, running a trauma system there, um, and he was very involved, unfortunately, in what happened in Sandy Hook. Uh, and both of us had been friends and colleagues for years. And um, we realized that we have an opportunity to educate people. And we actually started a program eventually called Stop the Bleed. Uh, that's the use of tourniquets to train people how to use tourniquets, not just police, fire, EMS, first responders, but the civilians. Um, and training went on this past weekend in the city of Boston to give out tourniquets to to everybody. And that's a direct relation from what we learned at the marathon. And we learned this in Iraq and Afghanistan with that data, but also what we saw during the marathon changed how people think about it in this country that now has literally saved thousands of lives. We've also learned about the mental health issues of how to, um, to take care of people. One of the survivors from the marathon, Dave Fortier, along with other survivors, started a group called One World Strong that helps survivors from other incidents. Uh, and one of the first groups they reached out to and worked with was, unfortunately, the survivors from Sandy Hook. Uh, but they have literally gone around the world to help survivors, peers helping peers after a disaster. And at Harvard, at the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative, they studied the leadership uh, of response to the marathon and what that really meant and developed what they call swarm leadership, 
uh, the response in Irish on that five things happen that people now use literally around the world in response to major incidents. And those simply are unity of mission, the first one, which is saving lives, the generosity of spirit in action, watching the community and others, how they help each other. Um, people able to stay in their lanes, but at the same time, help others succeed, making sure that, you know, people who needed help got help on both the day, the day on Monday, the marathon and throughout the week. Um, and also no ego, no blame people having, you know, in tough circumstances, people working together on not having the ego, not blaming each other. And then also having that foundation of trust and relationships, people who know each other, able to help each other through. And that swarm leadership developed by NPLI at Harvard, along with the use of tourniquets, along with the survivors helping survivors one world strong, is just, you know, three of many different things that people have utilized, unfortunately, from the tragedy of the marathon to help us respond better to other incidents as well going forward. One world strong. And I want to talk about that even more in the context of Boston strong. But before I do that, let me just remind our, our audience, uh, if you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar, and I'm Philip Martin. In for Callie Crosley, here with me are Bruce Gellerman, former senior correspondent for WBUR, and Rich Serino, senior fellow at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. And we're talking about the legacy of the Boston Marathon bombing. Gentlemen, in your own uh, worlds of uh, You've uh, you both had very personal connections uh, to the um, to the bombing. Uh, you, we could not help but have personal connections uh, in because we're part of the city, we're part of this community, and uh, our coverage and our responses as uh, as an, as emergency technicians even was was based on uh, our understanding of this race that we we're involved in every year we've covered it we've cheered for people who run it uh we've we saw how it impacted the city i'm wondering how it impacted you personally oh boy you know i didn't have a chance to kind of even catch my breath for about a week and, and then uh it was very cathartic um and i and i i kind of fell back to a familiar role which was you know do your job you know figure out said what, what happened, how do you report accurately and honestly? Um, and I got to tell you, Philip, I don't feel as reporters, there were a lot of reporters, right? I mean, the whole world was there because of the race. And then the whole world plus the whole world again showed up after the bombing. So it was really chaos. And we didn't train for that kind of stuff. How do you train for that uh, as reporters? Uh, I think we did pretty well, but we've never had an after action know, uh, a meeting, conference, how, how we covered it and how it affects you personally. It, it's kind of toxic, I, I have to say, it, especially, I, I mean, for me, I would live in Watertown and there was no getting away from it. And, you know, I'm being skeptic about really wanting to know more answers than there are, than there are available right now. Um, I think we did pretty well. I think we did well very proud of them and i'm proud of the city and i'm proud of what and rich what about you you know anybody that was there that day and i almost anybody in the city affected them because it felt personal it felt personal the attack because as those of us who have worked it or attended it for you know many many years decades um it's usually a great family day and so it felt really personal um and 
you know, listening to when he said, do your job. I mean, that's what people did that day. Um, but it did have an effect on them. And it had an effect on, on myself as well of how I view things. But it was also nowhere else I would have rather been that day. Um, as Captain Bob Saj Haley said, everybody ran the right way that day, meaning everybody ran towards where people needed help, where the bombs went off. And that, I think, is what people were trained to do and what people made a difference and saved lives. And that's at least the satisfaction that people get. But it certainly affected the mental health issue. And myself personally, yes. Um, but also the people I work with. Uh, people who, and it affected the citizens, it affected the families. Um, and an untold story is for two years how, you know, the the city and the Public Health Commission and folks at EMS and Public Health Preparedness worked with the families, worked with the survivors, worked with the responders uh, on the mental health issues, you know, for two plus years. So it, it really, you know, affected a lot of people. And I think that's one thing that we've, you know, yes, would also learn going forward. That's one thing we learned is for years we didn't deal with dealing with the mental health aspects, first responders, survivors, families, the community. But it's really needed to do that, and it makes a difference when we do. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar, and I'm Philip Martin, in for Callie Crosley. I'm speaking with Bruce Gellerman, former senior correspondent for WBUR, and Rich Serino senior fellow at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. We're discussing what the city has learned from the Boston bombing. All our hearts go out to the, to the victims and their families. Um, and one of the things of, that, of course, uh, occurred during this entire episode was Boston initiated this notion of Boston Strong. It was both a, a slogan and a campaign it was uh, something that people seem to have taken to heart um, in a very real way. But, but thinking about this moment of polarization, extraordinary polarization in our country um, along political and cultural lines, do you think Boston uh, could, could have the same, it would have the same impact today uh, as it had uh, in uh, 2013, uh, Bruce and Rich? You know, we are polarized. Issues have become politicized, everything. It was a spontaneous thing. People wanted to support each other. They they did. They came together. It didn't matter who you were and what you did. You know, that was a glorious thing. We see what we're capable of. Can we, would we come together again? You know, I would hope so. Um, I don't like the slogans. I don't like the the, the dramatic heroicisms. I really don't. It, I mean, people were terrific. And uh, the idea of coming together, I was there on Watertown, and I was standing right there in Frank, on, on uh, Franklin and Mount Auburn Street. And it was the most dramatic events of my life. I mean, I couldn't believe it. I was, I, honestly, I'm not ashamed to say I was almost in tears. Now, still have lots of questions, but what happened that day, that minute, was extraordinary. And Rich, you have the final word. I think, I think one of the things that, for sure, we watch people come together. And I've had the ability to travel around the country, um, unfortunately, at many, many hundreds of disasters in my role at FEMA. And I've always seen 
it never ceases to impress me, whether in an urban setting where people are polarized in a rural setting, to watch people helping people. And I've seen it, we saw it even recently in the most polarizing times, even in Florida, when they had Hurricane Ian, and you watched, you know, the governor of Florida and the president come together to help each other. We saw it during Hurricane Sandy when even in, you know, Governor Christie and President Obama ended up hugging each other. Um, so I think I'm, I'm the eternal optimist, but I believe that people coming together in times of crisis is actually one of the things that we can have hope for. Don't, don't ever underestimate the power of hope in bringing people together, because at the worst of times, unfortunately, it brings out the best of times. And, you know, am I naive enough to think it's going to solve everything? No, but in the times of crisis, watching people come together um, gives me some optimism and, and some hope as well. That's a great note to end this on. We're talking, folks, about the legacy of the Boston Marathon bombing. And I want to thank uh, you gentlemen for joining me today. You're very welcome. Thank you. Bruce Gellerman is a former senior correspondent for WBUR. And Rich Serino is a distinguished senior fellow at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and former chief of Boston EMS. Coming up, Boston is home to the annual marijuana festival, more commonly known as Hempfest, and dozens of cannabis dispensaries. But the cannabis industry here was created on the criminalization of people buying and selling cannabis, especially people of color. The city and state governments have taken steps to promote equity within the marijuana industry. But has it been enough? and what still needs to be done. That's next. This is Under the Radar. I'm Philip Martin, filling in for Callie Crosley.